Welcome to Pedagogue, a podcast about teachers talking writing. I'm your host, Shane Wood. In this episode, Alexander J. Gold talks about teaching at Harvard University, hashtag me too, social media and digital activism, and her book on contemporary poetry and art. Alexandra J. Gold is a head preceptor in the Harvard College Writing Program, Expos, where she has taught a course on women's narrative since 2018. She has received numerous certificates of teaching excellence, including Extraordinary Teaching in Extraordinary Times from the Harvard Office of Undergraduate Education. She earned her PhD in English Literature at Boston University and her BA in Political Science and English and MA in English at the University of Pennsylvania. Her research interests include post-1945 American poetry and visual art, women's gender and sexuality studies, media and pop culture, and critical pedagogy. Her first book, The Collaborative Artist's Book, Evolving Ideas in Contemporary Poetry and Art, which considers poet-painter collaborations in book form from mid-century to the present, is forthcoming in 2023 from the University of Iowa Press Contemporary North American Poetry Series. For more information on her teaching and writing, visit her website at alexandrajgold.com or follow her on Twitter at agold258. Alexandra, thanks so much for joining us. What's it like to teach writing at Harvard University? And I'm also really interested in learning more about your position as a head preceptor. What does that that mean or involve? Sure. Um, Thanks so much for having me. Um, So I've been teaching at Harvard now for going into my fifth year at Harvard, um, and I teach in the expository writing program, or expos, as we call it at Harvard. It's it's really interesting to teach at Harvard in in this position because expos is a really longstanding tradition. It's been around since, I think, 1872, so it's sort of a rite of passage for a lot of freshmen. I mean, literally, you'll go to a wedding and be like, oh, I took expos back in the day. So it has this real sense of history to it which is a a really unique thing that I've never encountered working in a department or program. I think the students also view it very much as like a rite of passage. It's the only class that all students at Harvard absolutely have to take in their time. Um, So there is a real sense of like tradition surrounding it, but also a little bit of like intrigue because it's it's been passed down and the students are like, oh, I have to take an Xbox class. Like what's that going to entail? Yeah, I think they view it with a little bit of trepidation, but also like on my end, I, 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 see it as part of just this long, rich tradition. In terms of being a preceptor, um, so Harvard's Expos program is made up entirely of non-tenure track or what they call non-ladder faculty. And so different um, non-ladder faculty within the institution have different roles. So they have lecturers, which are capped at three years, and they have preceptors, um, which are capped at eight years. So essentially after eight years, your contract expires and there's not really a chance for renewal. So despite the fact that Harvard has this long, rich tradition of expos, it's a funny position to be in where you know you're limited to only having, you know, your eight years. So I think teaching at Harvard, you know, comes with a lot of benefits. There's a lot of privileges that come with it, right? It's a well-funded institution. But at the same time, I think as a preceptor, I feel a little bit like I'm, I'm of the institution in some ways, but not in others, because I know my time there is limited and I want to do the best I can in the time that I have. And yeah, I think it's it's a funny, it, it's a little bit of a funny position to be in. Cause I think as a teacher, I find myself growing year after year after year and just getting better at doing the thing that I'm doing while always you know, being cognizant of the fact that it's a short lived situation. So um, yeah, I mean, I, I guess I have a little bit of like conflicting feelings towards it. 
Alexandra, what's your approach to teaching or what's your teaching philosophy and how does your institutional context inform what you do in the classroom? What assignments or text do students respond well to at Harvard University and why? That's a, a great question. One of the things that I've noticed at Harvard and I've taught writing at a couple of different institutions um, is just the like breadth of students that you get at Harvard because they are so generous with financial aid. You really have students who are coming from the most elite prep schools in the country, but you also have students who are coming from you know, less prepared backgrounds and maybe haven't had that same kind of experience in high school. And they're all sort of in your class. And, and it's a wonderful opportunity, I think, to really meet students where they're at. And one of the things I really try and do in my classes is sort of just say, okay, what, what skills are students coming in with? Do they know how to like do the work of analysis? Do they know what a thesis is? Um, I think for most students, whether they've come from a slightly less prepared background or if they've come from this elite prep school, um, you know, there's a lot of things that high school just doesn't prepare them for. So things like motivating your essay with stakes. Like I, I think despite having a wildly different array of students, there's always something new that they can discover together. And I think you can you can really build, you know, a class community around those things, um, the things that they're they're mutually discovering and, and go from there. We do have a sort of like not standard set of assignments per se, but we're all doing similar work across classes. So we always have a research paper at the end of the semester that the students have to do. Typically most classes will do like two to three essays, um, usually three, but if you do a capstone um, class, which I actually happen to teach, I do um, two essays and then I do a capstone. Um, each class is theme-based, so mine is on thinking about women's stories across different media. Um, we do really try and teach a bunch of different media, so I start with literary short stories because that's sort of my wheelhouse, and then we move into a little bit of feminist theory, which the students really seem to respond well to. And then we, we delve into like social media and think about social media activism. Um, and so the course ends, and this has been so far my favorite assignment, with a capstone that asks students to translate their research papers into these like group platforms where they're taking their research and making it available to a wider audience, asking them to think about what does it mean to communicate the same research through social media, how can social media be a form of communication and more than that, of activism? Um, and how do we speak to different audiences and genres? I think my favorite assignments that I've taught in a writing class are always the ones that ask students to think about audience and genre, and they just tend to respond really well to that sort of thing. So you teach a class on narrative media and hashtag me too. Can you talk more about that course and how you invite students to participate in these larger social and, and cultural conversations? Yeah, it's been really, really rewarding. I've taught the class. I started teaching this class in 2018. So right as sort of Me Too was picking up steam and I, like the students were very, very responsive to it. I always get students who want to take the class. I've never had like an under, I've never been under capacity because students are so eager to have these conversations in the classroom, especially given the Me Too landscape. What's been really interesting is seeing how that's evolved over the course of the five years. Um, in the summer of 2020, of course, we had like Black Lives Matter and then there's been Asian, uh, Stop Asian Hate. So there's been all these hashtags that have sort of like, uh, that have sort of cropped up over the years that I've I've slowly kind of embraced in my, not slowly, but I've, I've grown to sort of embrace my classes. So we started off really heavy into Me Too, but the class is really interested in intersectional feminism. So we think about what does it mean to um, talk about Stop Asian Hate or Black Lives Matter or all these things. Um, 
And I think, yeah, students are really receptive. I always make sure I'm really cautious about, you know, giving them warning. Like we are going to be talking about sexual abuse, sexual assault, things of that nature, racial violence. Um, and I try and, and make sure that everyone is as comfortable as possible with that um, because it, it can obviously be very triggering for some students. I tend to get a mostly, um, a class filled with mostly women. So I think, you know, on the one hand, um, there are certainly students who have experienced these things who you have to sort of navigate how to how to have those conversations with. And on the other hand, there are women who haven't experienced that but feel very passionate about talking about it. They maybe have never had the space to really engage with it, especially at the first year level. Um, so I think, yeah, it, it's a it can be a tricky subject to teach. Obviously, you have to approach it delicately, but I think also it can be really rewarding. And just the conversations we've had around the class and social media, both it's sort of what it's good for and also its pitfalls. I think students bring a real um, balanced understanding of social media to the classroom where they're they're both sort of digitally native and also at the same time skeptical of its limitations and what it can accomplish and what these sort of movements can do. Um, and so it's, it's led to some really rich conversations about both, you know, here's the, the sort of like importance of these movements, especially for those whose voices or whose communication is sort of marginalized in the mainstream, um, but also like, you know, there are limitations to what these platforms are able to accomplish. So we get to have great conversations about that. Can you talk more about digital activism? Are you asking students to participate within online activist communities or reflect on their own experiences within these communities? And are there social media assignments or analyses happening across social media platforms? Yeah, a little bit of all of that, honestly. Um, some of it is I give them some like readings just to frame our conversations. And the past couple of years, especially once we pivoted to Zoom, I've actually found it pretty easy to bring in speakers. So I'll have people who run these social media channels actually come to the class and talk to my classes about like, here's what it means to sort of do this work. Um, or we might look at some examples in class. So I try and bring in sort of like, here's what these, these channels are doing. I think students are also, again, they're quite familiar with these things because they're on their devices all the time. So they already come in with the baseline knowledge. Um, and then as I, I mentioned before, I asked them to sort of produce their own social media at the end of the class. Um, they do this, this social media channel and then they do a group presentation on it. And I asked them as part of that group presentation to sort of reflect on a question related to social media and activism. So um, is this a better form for activism than traditional forms of media like visual art or literature or whatever? Um, or I'll ask them to like, is this a meaningful platform for allyship um, across racial gender divides? Um, so I asked them to sort of both create the channel and reflect on what they've created, because I think if you're going to assign a non-traditional assignment, that reflection piece or that metacognition piece is super important. Um, so students sort of like both get to think about social media from a more, I don't know, theoretical perspective of like, here's what people have said about it. Here's what people are doing with it. Um, and then also from the more like hands-on perspective, like, okay, now we are content creators. What does that mean for us? How do we reflect on that role? Does this change our mind at all about, about, and I've had some students who have come in like kind of deep skeptics about social media and like, oh, this is, this is not like, I, we can never possibly like reach other people or it's meaningless or it's performative. And then by the end, when they make it, they're like, you know what, this is kind of cool. Like someone followed us online or like we got some like weird troll <laughs> account. I don't know. There's been a, like 
one uh, last semester one group made a TikTok and like one of their TikToks went viral and they were all excited about that um so I think yeah I think I think they they sort of like get to really think through social media in a really meaningful way in the class and that's a lot of fun to watch and to to just encourage them but in your upcoming book the collaborative artist book Evolving Ideas in Contemporary Poetry and Art, you discuss the ways in which poets and artists work collaboratively. Tell us a bit more about the book and the importance of collaboration, contemporary poetry and art, and what this means specifically for writing teachers in the classroom. Sure. Um, I come from a very traditional literary background. My PhD is in English, and so that's really sort of where my writing tends to lie. Um, And I actually, there isn't a ton of crossover between my own teaching and the writing, except in the obvious ways that like, when you're actually doing the work of writing a book, right? You have some perspective on what your students are doing and you sort of like, my students make fun of me because I'm like, I'm in it with you, I'm doing revision. And they're like, okay, we don't care. Um, but yeah, my book is on the like collaborations between experimental poets and artists in the mid-century. Um, my focus in English is sort of post-45 American poetry and visual art. So um, thinking through collaborations, I think it's really interesting to think about because I think of of the work of teaching is such a collaborative endeavor. And I think like, I've read so much about collaboration. My dissertation was on collaboration. Of course, I had the experience of I saw my dissertation topic everywhere. So I was consumed with collaboration and then writing the book, the same thing. And it's a bit funny to think about because in the classroom, I feel like the work we do is so collaborative. These students create collaborative projects, right? We're having collaborative conversations. But the work of writing I'm asking them to do is often so solitary and the work of writing I'm doing is so solitary. So sometimes I, I don't know, I feel like I don't quite know how to reconcile like the work I'm doing in the classroom and thinking about all day long with like the work I'm, I'm asking them to do. So I think at least researching collaboration and being so um, interested in that sort of thing in my own literary studies has really made me think about like, what, was, what does it mean to foster a collaborative classroom? Um, what does it mean to make the work of writing feel more collaborative when often we think of it as such a solitary endeavor? And so I think like, the work I've been doing in my book, while not directly applicable to what I'm teaching, like has really influenced everything I'm doing in the classroom and just thinking about like, how can we make writing seem like a collaborative activity, whether that's peer review or group conferences or whatever it is. Um, and I think it's been really informative in that way. Um, and a nice way of like sort of bridging the two worlds, even though they, they're kind of like concentric circles at this point where there's like an overlap in the middle, but the, the book and the teaching sort of sometimes feel like disparate endeavors. The book um, thinks about, I'm especially interested in thinking about questions of lyricism and the poetic lyric eye is, has been sort of a major interest of mine. And so I'm thinking about how these collaborative book forms that I'm studying sort of help us reconsider um, traditional ideas about lyricism and sort of think about the connections between the self and other and sort of collaborators and how that shifts the paradigm of individuality and individual voice and all of this stuff. Um, and I think like the other thing that I'm just really excited about is thinking about intermedia connections. And that's something I do a lot in my class as well. But um, what does it mean that sort of the visual art of the the experimental like 1950s and the literature or poetry is, is sort of moving in tandem um how are they shifting in relationship to each other so it's really thinking both i would say that the sort of two big things i'm thinking about in tandem in the book are both sort of like intermediality and also intersubjectivity and how those two things sort of coincide um in this period so 
yeah, little teaser, I guess, for the book. Um, looking at these collaborative art, artist books, it's been a long time project. So I'm really excited to have it actually come into the world and a little nervous too. Just like my students, I'm nervous to put my writing out for other people to read. Thanks, Alexandra. And thank you, Pedagog listeners and followers. Until next time.